Welcome to the Reputation Capital Podcast. I am capitalizing on my reputation by saying that uh, I'm Dr. Ken. And I am Randy Baker. And I get to tell you all the places we get to travel to. And today we're traveling all the way to the Essex countryside in England to a nice tiny little traditional English village and tucked in a beautiful little house in the village is Jill Tiny. I was thinking um, I could add something really great to the show. I, uh, I have this this uh, sound of where an alien craft kind of descends. It's like... I could do that over the top of as you're... You could have. Yeah. Because yeah. we landed and we got out of that alien craft and it was like going back in time. I, I, we didn't ask Jill whether she was lived in a thatch roof house, but I picture that. Yeah, and we went down underneath the earth into a tin mine. And then we went to the east end of London, which apparently you know something about, because you said some stuff that I had no idea what it meant. Well, yeah, yeah. When I used to wear a bag of fruit, I was in London and... Uh, what? <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, I don't know if I want to ask what that means. Yeah, well, you might have to look it up. So, <laughs> but yeah, our, our chat with Jill was really, really cool, and she's come a long way. And oh, we won't mention the part that she whispered. You'll have to listen very carefully for that. Yeah, that's good stuff. So here's our interview with Jill Tiny. So hi, Jill. So nice to chat with you again. I have to start out some of the the most soft and wonderful background there these these are they watercolors behind you no they're uh, photographs of my favorite happy place if you've ever been to cornwall in the uk um we have the dreamiest most romantic beautiful beaches and these are two of my favorite beaches porthminster and porthcurno and apparently my ancestors are from cornwall because it's very well known in the region for in the old days when there were smugglers sort of in the 1700s to have lots of tin mines and these tin mines are no longer used they stopped using them around about 1970s but my ancestors were called tinnies so oh. this is where my name comes from jill tiny although obviously in the early days it was pronounced tinny with two ends and now they took out an end so it's now tiny so a lot of people say to me oh is it to do with being short well yes i am short I, i'll give you a heads up i'm short. i'm, I'm nearly five foot two Woo-hoo. but <laughs> Yeah, it comes from the tin mines. So I have Cornish ancestry and I just love it down there. So I've got little bits of Cornwall all over the place around me to make me feel at home. It kind of, it's got a magic down there. It feeds the soul. It's a really beautiful place. But don't all rush there because everybody does and it gets busy. So I'd rather you not go. <laughs> I love the, I love how your personality and your, your storytelling just sort of bubbles over, uh, which it's a, uh, you know, speaks a lot for the the tinnies, as it were. Uh, so, where did that start within you? What was, if we were to sort of melt down your tinny past? What is the? Where, where do you come from? What stock? What? What stories? What people? Okay, so originated from the east end of London. Uh, my dad was a docker, and my mum was a carer. I didn't know we were poor, but we were quite poor. So we'd have meat on a Sunday, and maybe leftovers on a Monday and then not very much and then fish on a Friday. So it was a bit tight. We didn't have a bathroom. We had an outside toilet. My mom had to suffer with no hot water. And we obviously didn't have any central heating. That was like 
ridiculous. We didn't get a telephone until the 1980s. We didn't have a colour TV until I left home and got one for myself. So life was tough, but the ethos of the whole family was we are wealthy because we had a roof over our head and we did have food in our belly. So that was brilliant and that was fine. Now, all my peers were not necessarily on that kind of uh, level, but we just had this sunny, bright outlook. So no matter how tough my job gets, my life gets, whatever happens to me, my mum had to bring up two children in those circumstances. So everything else for me is easy. So I just feel very blessed. And, you know, we, we've come from the east end of London, which is like, roll your sleeves up, get on with it. Come on, we, we got through the blitz. This is the attitude. Um, so I, I just feel very happy to be where I am and now moved to the beautiful West Sussex countryside and living in a very quaint, typically English village. It's amazing. So so your dad was a docker. What, what mm-hmm. does that mean? I, I, I've heard people wow. talk about it. I mean, he worked <laughs> on the, the sea, on the docks. What, what does that mean? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He worked on the docks. So uh, he was a, a stevedore. He basically... The Thames in the 1950s, 60s, in fact, throughout history, has been a place where the world and their wife come, they unload their goods, and they get taken around the rest of the country and to across Europe. So he was one of the people that physically had to unload everything from the docks. Then when container lorries came in that we now see regularly going around places, he became a crane driver to take the containers off the ship and put them onto the lorries. So um, he had a very physical, tough job. And in the 70s, because of the politics, he very often didn't have a job. They were often on strike. Um, if you're on strike, you didn't get any money. So we never knew, you know, where the money was coming from next. So it was quite, um, as a child, didn't know that. But as a grown-up, you look back and you go, wow, that was a tough existence to, to be part of. And your mother worked full-time then when you were a child as a as a carer? Or? No, well, um, she didn't get paid for that. Um, she looked after my great aunt. So this was, you know, my great aunt was at home with us, so she used to look after her. She did do some sewing. She was a seamstress. She made all of our clothes as kids. I didn't buy an item of clothing until I was 13. So that's every jumper, every, you know, apart from shoes, <laughs> she made everything. And I couldn't wait to go out and buy real proper clothes because I thought that homemade stuff wasn't good enough. Now I look at people that can run up a dress in half an hour and go, wow, that's so clever. And that bypassed me. I never got, I never got that talent, unfortunately. So that is a, that's a really interesting place for you to start your, your life. Um, the East End of London, uh, apart from not being able to understand a word they say, um, <laughs> but loving rhyme, rhyming slang, that was pretty awesome. Yeah. And now you're in Sussex in a nice little village. Uh, you've got your own little business going. The lessons that you learned as a child in the East End mm-hmm. that um, were not driven by a lack of knowledge of your poverty but driven by what you saw around yourself and what people did and how they lived, mm-hmm. how does that translate into what you're doing with your business today? Well, massively, actually. One of the values of the business is human being first. And I say to people when they come to meetings, I don't care how tall you are or short you are, fat, thin, gay, straight, black, white, any colour in between, male, female, old, young, don't care. You're a human being first, therefore I love you. We are connected as humanity. If I love you, I trust you. 
And if I trust you, I respect you. And that's my starting point for every relationship. And it's up to you if you want to lose that. Now, I look back to my childhood and I was blessed to be in the East End of London because it was such a beautiful multicultural society. In my school, I mean, at five years of age, I would walk to school at the East End of uh, London and I was the, um, there was only one other white person in my class. We were at League of Nations, it was wonderful. And she was from New Zealand. So I was the only English kid in the class. And I didn't know there was a difference, right? I remember coming home at six years of age and having my friends around for tea and we played and then they went home. And my mum said to me, don't have any white friends. I was like, what do you mm. mean? Don't you have any, you know, white friends? And I'm like, I don't. Oh, and I had never seen it till that point. And I remember it distinctly now that our adults were making us different. Kids didn't care, but the adults were kind of seeing it as different. And my mum and dad would say, oh, we're not racist. You're kind of, oh, ignorant racist. But that was the world they lived in then. But if you consider next door to us were Portuguese, next door to that were West Indian, next door to that were Irish, and there was uh, Bangladeshis, and there was Pakistanis, da, da, da. it was everybody. And we were all in it. We'd have street parties. We would have do all sorts of things. It was amazing. And that kind of inclusion and connection and doing stuff together forms the business and collaboration global, which is the, the organization that I run. Um, it forms everything. And I just see that if you can come together and collaborate and connect with each other on a deeper level, then you can actually solve any problem on the planet. It may be sound naive. It may be sound simplistic. But you know what? It's true. So did you, did you grow up, Jill, did you grow up in a, in a traditional row house or was it a, a flat or projects? Um, yeah. Was it a two up, two down, or one up, one down? What, what was it like? It was a two-bedroom flat um, on the first floor. Mm -hmm. um, and then we were lucky enough to swap with my nan, who at the age that she was had managed to buy her first property. So imagine this is early 60s. She bought her first property in the 1940s as a single woman because her husband had died. How amazing is that? That's pretty incredible, yes. <laughs> and, we, and, and that was working three jobs at night. That was taking in lodgers. So she just got everything she could to get the money to be secure and have a roof over her head permanently. So we eventually swapped with her and we had the house in the same road because she still lived across the road from us. Uh, so we had that house and that was the house my mum was born in. And that was the rest of So from the age of nine to 18, I, I lived in that house, which was a terrace house, you know. Um, right. Three bedrooms, but it was three bedrooms. It was, it was no, crazy, yeah, the expression. <laughs> Living room at the front, parlor at the front, actually. Yeah, kitchen at the back. So you're now in Sussex, but you were in that house until you were eighteen-ish. Mm -hmm. How yeah. did you feel when you moved out, and how did you feel when you moved away from the East End? Because that's culturally as different as going to a new country. Yeah. Well, I was living in sin. So I moved in with my boyfriend. So everything was fine. I didn't, I was having an adventure. It was fun. After about six months of renting a place, we decided to buy, which can you imagine at 18, 19 was ridiculous, but we did it anyway, against lots of people's advice. So everything was an adventure. So we moved out to um, Essex at that point, And then we very quickly moved to Hertfordshire. So it was like, let's get a, a house 
then let's get a better house, let's get a better... And we just pushed ourselves. And, and it's very easy to push yourself at that point because it's like, well, if we muck up and we make a mess of this and we can't afford it, we, we're still going to go back to something better than my mum had when I was a kid. So it's not that bad. So we ended up moving into the house where we brought our children up for 24 years with the hope that if we can stay there for a whole year, it's a bonus. We never really thought that we, we never really played safe. We just pushed ourselves the whole time. And as you said, it was a cultural difference, yeah. So that feels like it's the, that feels like it contains within it what you're trying to do with, with others uh, in your career, right? So it's allow people to think bigger, think different, you know, mm-hmm. feel more security, feel more safe. Earlier you said, um, you know, kind of if you could just gather everyone together, you'd say, I love you, which is really interesting. I'm kind of crossing over into Randy's territory here, but I'm, I'm curious what the, what, what is the sort of business model behind sort of the I love you sentiment? Because that's where things get tricky, uh, mm-hmm. where you want to help everybody. But how do, you, how do you run a commercial sort of business when you're when the commerce is is you know caring for yeah. people um i think i think the pandemic has taught us that we don't need as much stuff as we think we do so for me the model is around uh, being sustainable and having enough i don't want to grow it to be rich there is no price tag on anyone's back it's about what impact and what difference can we make to uh, the community to each other so we keep the price as low as I possibly can to kind of cover costs and give me something. I'm never going to be one of these people that say, oh, I think I'm going to have a bonus this year and let's make it 1.2 million. I, I don't need that. Now, we might have that spare capacity in the, in the business and then we'll go and do some good with it. We will utilise that for the benefit of the members or for the projects they want to take on or for the benefit of other people that are connected to us. So I'm not in this business to get rich. I'm not in this business to, I'm already rich, right? Kid at five, six years of age knows that it's wealthy because it's got a roof over its head and food in its belly. So I'm done. Doesn't mean to say that I don't want an income and want money because of what I can do with it. So you know when you have these events and you say to people, so how much money do you need to be happy? And people go, oh, well, I'd like to pay my mortgage off and I'd like to maybe have, maybe half a million would be really nice or maybe a million. And they come to me and they say, how much do you want? I said, I don't need anything. But I want about two billion. That will get me a seat at the table because I want to start talking to people about how to collaborate. And when I can tell people that this, you do this, 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 and this, and you're like 90% sure it's going to come out happy and a success and support and help people, then two billion will give me that peace of mind and get me a seat at that table. And then I can use that for the benefit of other people. So talking business models, it's just a membership model. So people pay 50 pounds a month to be part of it. And from that, we promote them and support them and coach them and help them and see what we can do. But we do it together. So I don't know everything about marketing, but somebody in the community does. I don't know everything about websites, but somebody in the community does. Uh, I know everything about collaboration as far as my last 10, 15 years of research and writing the book goes. So together, we're an amazing entity. And more and more people that come, then the more more talent we have, the more more genius we have, and the more purpose we have to be successful. So I, I I don't want to be crass, but I'm kind of. It's almost like a, what what I'm hearing is hitting my head, my brain, in such a way that it's, it's like you're a matchmaking business. It's like you're a dating business. It's like you're bringing 
people into a club where they can meet and find other people that can be together, they can be more than they are by themselves. Is that taking it too simplistic? Yes and no. Potentially it is a club, but I don't want it to be a club. I, I want to just be a space. We hold the space for people to be the best that they can be. And if they happen to bump into somebody in the community that would be great for them, then kind of part of my role is, well, have you spoken to that person? Because you two could go off and do something amazing. That's part of what I call is my genius, is joining the dots and spotting that, oh my God, you'd be amazing together. Let's work together to see if we can get you off on a project and get it done. That's not a guarantee. I say we hold the space because in that space, we're learning about personal development. We're learning about business development. We're learning about collaboration development. So they learn all this stuff and then everything else kind of falls into place. They can see their world. They can see other people in a different way and they can see the potential and the possibility. So we're constantly looking at solution finding rather than problem finding. Um, and by getting together on a regular basis, we give each other ideas, we support each other, we come together just to kind of encourage each other to be the best that we can be, to challenge each other, to just go, oh, well, you know, you said you were going to do that. That was two months ago. And what, what have you done? How are you going to be doing that? Tell me some more. And it's not in a, well, haven't you done that? It's not in a bully tactics of, well, you said you were going to, what's wrong with you? It's, it's in an encouraging, positive, empowering space. So from the i guess the depths of the tin mines to the sort of heights of the you know two billion dollars of influence how do you see uh, i always ask this question so randy knows it's coming but i don't know if you ever read huckleberry finn where huckleberry finn sits up in the balcony while everybody's giving him a eulogy what are you hoping that as a result of your time here. What are you hoping that, that folks are going to be able to do in a different way? Well, the simple answer to, to that, Kent, is um, collaborate. Because at the moment, there is a very small group of people that can do it, a small percentage that can do it naturally. And they go, well, everyone could do that, surely. And there's a vast majority that have been stung, have started and couldn't, didn't know where to go, have um, come up unstuck along the way and somebody took something from them, their IP or uh, clients or whatever, and they're shy of collaboration. So for me to be able to give them some guidelines around how to collaborate, but also the underpinning of how you be a better person in order to collaborate, that would be my, my legacy. It's like if, if Jill is known for teaching people how to, that, that would be plenty. That because I truly believe that if we taught politicians how to collaborate, if we taught, if we had collaboration in the education system, if we had collaboration in the monetary system, I mean, the mind boggles with what's potentially possible. But until people realize why they're not collaborating effectively, they're just going to go around and around in circles. And at the moment, I don't know if you've spotted this, but out in that real world, it's blame, it's denial, it's judgment, it's I'm right, you're wrong. Nobody's going to get anywhere like that. It's just, you know, hitting a brick wall, she said politely. You know, it's you can see this downward spiral of people just getting angry and upset because they're used to being angry and upset. So everything sets them off. But what if we go, hang on a minute, there's this thing called love and it's very soft and fluffy, you know, but actually it's our superpower. And if we start from that place, what could be achieved? 
And although on the big scale, I'm never going to see this happen in my lifetime, but on the big scale, it's like hard to visualize. But on a day-to-day scale, if I talk to somebody and they go, wow, that's interesting. I'd never really thought about collaboration before. I'd never considered love and collaboration. Actually, I might try that. That's my job done. That's all I need. That's all I want to be known for is I took the person over the edge to realize that they don't have to be angry. They don't have to get upset about things. They don't have to defend themselves all the time. They can have grown up conversations and learn from other people and help other people and support each other to do all manner of things that are needed in this world. It sounds like you grew up both in poverty and without poverty in a way, because you grew up around such diversity of thinking and people and and all of that, which is is fascinating how you've brought that into your work. So if, if folks are trying to be part of what it is you are talking about, uh, where can they find you and who are you looking for? Anyone that has a purpose in their life and has a heart who wants to have a bigger reach, if they just go to collaborationglobal.org, and have a look on the website and then on there there's a little button that you can click and you can come to one of our meetings we have members around the world we would love to see you it's always the last tuesday of the month three till five uk time Uh, and we have fun we have a giggle we learn stuff we share stuff and we support each other sometimes you need a hanky it can get a bit emotional and sometimes it's just a bit bit of fun but it's your um people say it's their feel-good factor they're feeding their soul at that time every month and i would love people to come and just try us out there's no it doesn't cost anything to come and come to these meetings but you'll meet some amazing beautiful warm-hearted people certainly um we can feel that here um i feel like uh, i'm not quite sure if i want a hanky right now or to kind of have a giggle i think the having a giggle is is a fun makes me feel happy so thank you for joining us and and chatting (laughs) a little bit You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. It's been a joy. Thanks, Jill. I really sort of, you you brought my memories back. Um, When I lived in London in the 80s, I I lived mostly on the west side of London, but the east side was something totally different. And uh, I can remember going to the Isle of Dogs and various places like that. It's London is two places, and then you get outside of London into the countryside in Essex or Sussex, and it's in a different world again. So you brought back a whole lot of memories um, when you were talking about your upbringing in East London and your journey from there to the English countryside. And what you're doing now, collaborating, helping people to collaborate, teaching them how to collaborate, is truly something that the world actually needs. So I'm in awe of what you're doing. And uh, we neglected in in the interview um, to talk about Jill's brand new book, Hot Off the Presses. I mean, it's literally just steaming on my desk right here. It's just hot off the press, called Together We Can Do Something Wonderful. And uh, she let us know that's the title of the book comes from a Mother Teresa quote. And um, I'm looking forward to flipping through that. So that brings me, uh, Kent, to one of the things that we rarely talk about is the importance of visibility and authority and books, podcasts, speeches, 
helped to create authority and credibility and your own visibility. And on our website, we have a little assessment that you can take that will tell you just how visible you actually are as either a business person or with your personal brand. Is this the one at uh, crazymba.com? Well, Crazy MBA doesn't have the assessment, but it's Not certainly right. crazy cheap. Right, right, but right. No, you're better to go to thoughtpartnergroup.com. And there's a little button there that says free assessment. It's going to take you a couple of minutes to fill it out. We'll take a couple of minutes and respond and just let you know how your visibility is going in the real world. Now, Crazy MBA is something else. I think you should just spend a buck and go and join that and you'll get lots and lots of information. And I'll issue a challenge that I've issued to probably thousands of people before, which is write a book about it. That's all.